A vision without execution is just a dream. Welcome to Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. Like the show title says, Chris speaks with transformative experts and business leaders who share their successes, failures, and leadership tips that will help you transform your business into a success story. Now, here's your host, Chris Elias. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Transformative Experts. Today, I have Dr. Chris Johnson. Uh, Chris is a psychologist, a certified coach, um, founder of Q4 Consulting, and passionate about building feedback-rich environments. That's something that is uh, near and dear to my heart, uh, all the work we do on culture and talk about culture. I I think this Mm -hmm. is a really key aspect of it. Welcome, Chris. Mm, Thank you for having me. Good morning. Hey, uh, you know, it's so glad to have you here, and it's a nice morning that it is. I wish our, our listener base could see see the bright si- sun coming in both our windows, and um, mm-hmm. just what a great day we have. Um, so you've got a really interesting story, and our listeners know we always start with the, the guest's story, and um, we have some commonality in our past with, with some of the people we've been associated with. So, you know, I don't want to give too much of that away. Uh, but mm-hmm. I'd love it if you would share your story. You know, how does one become an expert at building feedback-rich environments? And love to 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 get mm-hmm. into that. Plus, talk about your book, obviously, the Leadership Pause. Um, I know there's a subtitle to it. I'll let you say that at some point. But okay. uh, it's really, really good stuff. Would you uh, mm-hmm. Would you just share your story? How did you get to where you are today? Ooh, it's a really great question. You know, everybody has such interesting life stories. Um, I'm thinking of the shorter version. So I grew up with two entrepreneurial parents. So they both had their own businesses. I grew up in central Illinois, out in the country, uh, which is a really great place to grow up. And I know, and I knew growing up that it took way more hours than 40. And there were lots of weekends and lots of evenings. And so by the time I was in my 20s, I was working for uh, what was then called the Employee Resource Center. We would call it uh, health and wellness today. And I was determined already at that young age to figure out a way to balance this thing that we called work and life. And so given some of the trajectory of my own life, it was not always pretty at home, I'll just say that. Um, I was also really keen that the way that we do that is actually the quality of the conversations that we have. And so if we can't have conversations that actually take us somewhere instead of conversations that just get us in conflict and we kind of stay jammed up and stuck, then we were all toast. So really I started being very committed to this idea of work-life balance, which I think is kind of a misnomer by the way. And this notion of um, how do we actually engage in conversations of meaning and purpose? And so that started me on my trajectory at that point. And it's been a journey ever since with all kinds of, you know, hills and valleys in the process. So, so you, you know, you went to school and obviously became a psychologist at some point you, you decided that that was the path for you as opposed to, I mean, you know, I, I don't know what your undergraduate was, was it an MBA or, or, or what took you onto that path then? And, and how have you leveraged mm-hmm. it? Because you've also gone and gotten a couple of certifications um, through Correct. some of the coaching education. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so I was always interested in business and because of having grown up with my parents in their own work, I knew that I wanted to figure out again, this balance. I was a psychology undergrad. And at the time, um, 
I had gone to social work school after college because I wasn't terribly confident in myself uh, by the time I graduated. So I went to social work school with an express interest in looking at organizational development and how we work in our workplaces. And um, yeah, so that's how I got there. Um, I referenced conversations earlier, you know, it wasn't great growing up in terms of the level of conflict and yelling and screaming that would go on periodically. And so I really hated the yelling and screaming. And I was determined that there surely somebody figured out something along the way that I could learn how to do this uh, and actually help people listen and speak more effectively. So that's really, that was at the core, if I'm honest about the whole thing. Uh, was this and, yelling and screaming at the home, like your, your parents going through their entrepreneurial businesses? And I mean, you know, let's face it, as entrepreneurs, you know, people who are driven will get into those, let's call them robust conversations. Okay, we can go with robust. This was uglier than that. This yeah, was bet. way uglier than that. It was, you know, kind of yelling and screaming at home, but the tensions were, had been rising. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, and they didn't seem to be super productive, Chris. And so it was like kind of a repetition of the same old conversation. So I would say those were not robust conversations. Yeah. But where I wanted to go was how do we have robust generative conversations where, you know, we're kind of at each other a little bit, but there's a, a certain baseline of respect, a certain understanding that we all have points of view that are worth hearing, even if I think you're full of beans, um, and that we can come back and actually tussle a little bit. I kind of like that generative conflict, the robustness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, you know, It makes me think of Patrick Lencioni's five dysfunctions of a team, right? I mean, if right, there's exactly. trust, you know, engaging conflict is a, is a good thing if it's healthy conflict, but you got to have right. trust. Mm-hmm. You got to have some other things, a willingness to get into the fray a little bit. That's exactly right. Yeah. And so I didn't come by that naturally. Mm-hmm. What I came by with in my own way of being as a young professional was um, I was interested in the conflict, but I was kind of avoidant because it bothered me so much. It upset my central nervous system just enough. So then you add all the stresses of a workplace and my central nervous system was riled up and I knew I wasn't the only one because then I would hear people come into the employee resource center and they too were experiencing stress and being overwrought and needing to have conversations. Does, does anybody come by it naturally? I mean, you know, I, 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 I wonder if, huh. I, I mean, I think some people come by being argumentative naturally, but being able to do it in a generative state, being able to do it positively, does anybody, or is that a learned behavior? Yeah, that's a super question. I think that there might be some folks who are disposed, predisposed to listening more effectively, but I actually think it's a learned set of skills, conversational skills. And our culture puts a heavier emphasis on the speaking than we do on the listening. And so uh, I think that if we could flip that, lots of things would shift in the world uh, in a positive direction, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny that you say that because um, mm-hmm. I think about a training I went through many years ago. And you know, the things that you remember. And uh-huh. <laughs> um, this was uh, actually, this was when I, when I first left the corporate world, I uh, went into the sales training, Sandler sales, because I was kind of curious. I didn't know much oh. about sell, sales, starting my own business. How do I get it going? So I signed up and um, the, uh-huh. the guy up in Michigan, a friend of mine, Jerry Weinberg, I remember him drawing a picture on the, the board. It was like a Charlie Brown looking kind of like smiley face and, and uh-huh. two ears and, and all that. And he always said, look, you got two ears and one mouth. You should be listening twice as much as talking. 
Yes, that's exactly right. The, my old Sunday school teacher used to say the same thing years ago. And it's like, yep, that's exactly right. So I think that that's a good, a good thing. Mm-hmm. So this took you then on this path of, um, let's call it mindfulness. Um, you know, mm-hmm. I, I mentioned in the introduction that, that we have a little bit of overlap in our past because, you know, um, mm-hmm. many, many years ago, I had a chance to, to, to uh, meet, a man, meet a gentleman named Richard Strozzi. Um, and you, he, he has the Richard Strozzi Institute, a place mm-hmm. where you've spent some time. And I think that that was very influence, influential on you. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> Richard and the work of embodiment have been very influential on my own development. Um, so if I back up, Chris, if you'll indulge me here a second. Mm-hmm. So um, there's a story I like to tell that's instructive in terms of why the pause is so interesting. And then I'll fast forward to Richard and his teaching about the pause. So when I was working at the employee resource center, I was invited to a big bank downtown Chicago to teach stress management because people were so stressed. And so my training was heavily focused on the cognitive way of assessing stress who are, what are your stressors? Who are you working with? What's going on in your environment? Let's make a plan. All of that. None of it's bad. It's all, all good. But that was the way that folks were um, encouraged to teach and work with stress. The other thing at the time, and this is actually still a lingering residual hmm, factoid, I think, is this notion that stress is bad, that stress is fundamentally a bad thing. And so we have to manage it. You know, we have to cram it into a management plan on how we work with our stress. And so I was invited to teach at this bank. And round about that time, it was August in Chicago. So it's really bloody hot. It's uh, humid. We're talking sauna here. And um, I'm preparing to teach this course at the bank. And uh, I came down with red, blotchy, itchy, mm, really itchy legs. And so in the middle of the night for like two weeks straight, I would be like scratching and waking myself up. It was horrible. Mm -hmm. And so finally, I'm so upset about the whole thing. I go to the doctor and she says, okay, well, so we'll run some tests. So we ran some tests. I was convinced I, I don't know, that I'd changed detergent or had poison ivy or something. I was convinced it was that. She said, well, the good news is you're not allergic to anything. And the bad news is, is that you have a really severe case of contact dermatitis and we can clear it up. I can give you some medicine, uh, but that's the deal. And then she said, this is the real kicker. And it'll lead to the comment about Richard is my diagnosis of you is that you have chronic stress. And I'm like, Oh my God, I'm going to teach this at the bank. And I'm, a living example of what not to be doing. Right. Right. And so all of that's to say that in those moments, uh, as I was then prepping to teach at the bank, I came across the work of John Kabat-Zinn, who he wrote a book. He's written a bunch now It's called full catastrophe living. And it's really about how to embrace the full catastrophe. And he had a different way of working with stress. So instead of managing and boxing it up and all of that, He was all about how do you be with what comes your way and be with it. So mindfully allowing what's here to be here, quit fighting yourself, Chris, basically. So I started practicing and little by little over a few months, as I was prepping then for my second round of this teaching, I started to realize I could 
tolerate the drivers on the 290 expressway without wanting to flip them off. And I could sit with my clients without having to fix them. And I started to be able to see, oh, I can see my own stress reaction. I'm getting all jazzed up. I'm getting really worked up. My body's starting to take a hit. And I could see it in such a way that then I had choice about how I wanted to respond. So instead of simply reacting, fight, flight, freeze, I could choose like, oh, I need to do something different to work with myself. So what I like to say is in those moments of learning about John's work, John Kabat-Zinn's work and the work of mindfulness, I became a little bit more self-aware because I was determined that this doctor was wrong, that I was not stressed out because the story I was telling myself was that I was not stressed out, that all my work would, hard work would prevail and everything would be okay. And I was wrong. And I was wrong in that I needed to learn to be more self-aware. So that was early on in my career where pausing helped me become self-aware. Fast forward through a few iterations and nodal points in my own professional journey, I landed at the Strozzi Institute in California studying at the Strozzi Institute. And so Richard also has a history of working with uh, mindfulness teachers, spiritual teachers, and learning and practicing mindfulness. And then he goes deeper than that. And what he would say, and I actually do uh, use a number of his quotes and leaned into him as I was writing this work, is really what's the felt sense that any of us have with regard to stress, with regard to what we're feeling and noticing at any moment that really taps into our EQ, our emotional intelligence, um, our social emotional intelligence. And what I learned at the Strozzi Institute was really how to tune and go inward into that felt sense. And what we talk about is that's the way by tuning in and going there to develop more consciously and intentionally this notion of intuition. You know, what's mother's intuition, but what's a leader's intuition about the, how we need to move forward and take the direction we need to take. So Richard was instrumental um, in that. And uh, yeah, it's pretty powerful stuff. And I would say it's not too much of an exaggeration that it's radically changed my life and how I approach life for sure. And so I bring that to the work that I do with leaders and I still use some of that cognitive stuff because it's not bad. It's just yeah. not as complete, but a lot more of emotional intelligence and certainly the impact of what does it mean to be embodied as a person, as a leader, because we all are embodied in particular ways. Like my growing up, part of my early embodiment that was invisible to me was that I would react under those negative uh, non-generative conflict that I had, I would react right. and avoid. And that was embodied in me in a way I didn't fully appreciate until I did the work much later and started to unpack all that. Does that make sense? It, it makes a lot of sense. And it's, it's amazing how often we've talked um, with people in general and the work that we do we do a lot of work on what we call transformational leadership, right? And it's about mm. kind of taking it to that next level. And the first step of it is self-awareness. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. the, the, and I, I don't mean to be mean about it, but there's not a lot of self-awareness going on out there. <laughs> yes. 
I would agree that there's, well, because there's a lot of talking right. and not so much listening. And if we really want to become self-aware, then we have to hush up and like tune in and tune in here, but also tune into who we're having a conversation with, like you and I today. Right. And then there's a space between us too. And if we can't slow down and we're too busy and we're caught up, then self-awareness is elusive, yep. which is not great. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. We're already up on our first break. Time goes fast. Okay. Um, so yeah. stay tuned, everyone. We're going to be back in just a couple of minutes with Dr. Chris Johnson. It's time to transform your business with the help of the execution culture co-written by your host, Chris Elias. Make your company smarter, faster, and stronger with real world advice on culture, leadership, and execution. The execution culture available now on Amazon. Is your company or team struggling to achieve the results you would like? Optimize your life, your team, and your organization through clarity, purpose, and action. At Nexecute, we have over 100 years of combined experience leading organizations and coaching individuals to achieve their vision. We design a customized approach to ensure successful execution and optimize your results. Connect better. Grow better. Take the next step and give us a call for a free consultation with your host, Chris Elias. 888-378-8808. That's 888-378-8808. This is Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. If you have a question or a comment about the show, please send an email to listener at transformativeexperts.com. Now, back to Transformative Experts. We're back with Dr. Chris Johnson. Uh, So, Chris... You know, I want to I want to ask kind of a tough question here. You know, I myself have had some experiences with moving down the path of of some mindfulness. I've got a lot of work to do. I've I've personally experienced the power of it. Yet I come across a lot of people who don't believe in it. You know, who 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 think, oh, you know, this is all soft and fuzzy and squishy, and that's not what a leader should be doing. And a leader needs to be hard driving. And um, mm-hmm. I, I used to laugh. I was thinking about my uncle as you were saying some of some of it, and he must have done this naturally because he never exhibited any stress at all. Never had high blood pressure, but he was a definite carrier since everybody else uh-huh. around him had stress all the time, right? Ah, and nobody okay. knew how to there deal with go. that. But uh-huh. um, joking aside, um, you know. I'd love to dive a little bit into the science. Your book addresses some of the science behind it. And so for, mm-hmm. for, for those people who may not, um, may not believe in this stuff without seeing some scientific evidence, there is real hard mm-hmm. evidence out there. There is science behind it. And, you know, you know, if, if, if I were sitting here really pushing you let's, and, and being a non-believer, how would you convince mm-hmm. me that, that this is a worthwhile pursuit as a leader? That's a really great way to frame the question. How would I convince you? Um, what I would say is that in our achievement oriented culture, that question might attract people like, go ahead, just convince me, make my day kind of thing. And what I would say is that, um, I'm not really about convincing what I'm about is I can provide some science, uh, research that can share and exhibit, reveal how it is that our bodies work. Mm-hmm. And then the whole idea behind a more mindful approach is that you have to try it on yourself. Yeah. So this is mindfulness practice is not like, Hey, here are the five easy steps and you just do boom, boom, boom. And you're good to go. That's how our culture tends to think it's much more analytic, cognitively oriented, and that's really good, but it's not complete it needs the other half, if you will. And that is 
what's actually going on for any of us that a thought arises, an analytical thought, mm-hmm. even a thought about how to handle stress. All of that is biologically driven. We are um, we are sensory animals, and the reality is we have incoming data coming at us all the time from our senses, the ones we typically think of in terms of sight, sound, hearing, all of that, but then also our interoception, which is how do we notice and feel ourselves inside? So what we can say is, to go more specifically to your question, everybody's stressed out today. Everybody's super busy today. It's all been exacerbated by the pandemic. And the solution that many people try is to multitask, do many things at one time, which is physiologically impossible to do. Multitasking is a computer-derived term, and computers can work lickety-split really fast, and we are not wired that way. So what happens is when we try to do too many things at once, it's a drain on the glucose in our brain that actually helps us be more focused and present to what's actually going on. When we are deprived or we run out of that glucose, we can't think as as straight for ourselves. And so then we're just putting an increased tax on our system. There's also something that I talk about in the book. I did not make this up. Um, I'm blanking on her last name, Linda. Uh, She was an executive at Microsoft, talked about and coined the phrase continuous partial attention. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like we're hovering. We want to take it all in all at the same time. And that has a drain on our uh, glucose in the brain and our capacity to stay focused. Um, So I go through and talk about a number of the scientific studies that support this notion of clarity and concision that can happen when we're simply paying attention. In fact, I would say that's probably along with self-awareness, the way to become more self-aware is to harness our attention. If we don't harness our intention, we are at the mercy of all the distractions and all the incoming all the time. So incoming from outside, incoming from in here in terms of our stories, our sense of uh, you and I both spoke a little bit ago that we hadn't been feeling well because the COVID bug had visited us. And so the reality is on that note, there's a way in which our bodies are talking. So are we listening to what we need at the moment? Most of us tend to override that. So, so when, when you talk need... about paying attention, though, are you talking about paying attention to what's going on internally? Is it paying attention to what's going on externally? Is it all the above? I mean, what, what exactly are we paying attention to? It's all above. And so um, very much we're externally focused in terms of what's going on around us. We don't pay attention to our bodies so much until we're sick or we're overly tired or maybe we're hungry. All of those are cues that we want to zero in and tune in. But unless we're in one of those, most of us have our attention focused outside. And so um, we want to be able to attend, like notice and train our attention and where it goes. And that can go internally and that can go externally. And that can go, Chris, between the two of us as well. Mm -hmm. Like what is this shared kind of conversational space that exists between us? So... Yeah, you know, I, I kind of want to dive a little bit more into the science. Um, you know, just okay. myself being a bit of a science geek and, and all of that. Okay. So, uh-huh. so 
I'm not even sure how to ask the question, but as I think about it, the you know the the research actually shows that that um, that we we bottle this stuff up and we're not leveraging it. That it that it drives the stress, or or what exactly is it? Yeah, I'm trying to think of the best way to answer that. So we are incredibly adaptive animals Mm -hmm. and we will adapt to our circumstances uh, in terms of what's incoming in terms of the clients and temperature around us. And we're designed to balance that out when we are overstressed and overtaxed. There are a number of stress hormones that start to move through our system. We think about them as fight, flight, freeze, but we think about them as, um, dopamine, testosterone, adrenaline, when those spike, they do amazing things to keep us alert and focused. And so that's a really good thing. However, unless you are uh, a zebra on the savanna who's getting attacked or potentially attacked by a lion, we don't need to have those levels of stress hormones coursing through our veins 24-7. And most of us do, given the kinds of work environments that we're in. And so those hormones are designed to help us get out of town, basically. If I'm a zebra, I want to get the hell off of the savanna so that I am not eaten alive. That's how it feels to people very often at work, that they're being eaten up or zapped out and used up at work. So what we want to do is intentionally reduce those neurochemicals, neurohormones, so that we can be more in this moment. So that basically I don't have the gas on, I can pump the brake and I can allow those chemicals to dissipate. And then there is one stress hormone that's really interesting. It's called oxytocin. Mm -hmm. It's the hormone that makes us want to connect with each other, tell great stories, all of that kind of thing. It's also called the tend and befriend hormone Mm -hmm. because it moves us toward other people when we're stressed out. That's a stress hormone as well. So if you've ever had a situation where you're really stressed at work and you're heightened and then you realize you'd really like to talk to a colleague or maybe go home and chat with your spouse about it, um, all of that is predicated by the levels of oxytocin in the bloodstream. It helps us then dissipate the story as well as the hormones, and we can kind of get back in connection with ourselves, what's important to us, but also with whoever we're working with. So tend and befriend, and we're off to the races. So we've effectively turned on the brake of how we're got it. So it's, so even though it's considered a stress hormone, it's, it's back to one of those, those balancing factors that can be in our system that can actually bring us back around. You know, I once I heard an explanation and, um, and what they were talking about is how, you know, how the stress hormones affect your thinking and the description, Uh the description was something like this. Um, and I, this was many years ago, so I don't know that I'll get exactly right, but that, you know, when you get adrenaline and some of these other hormones pumping through your system, that Mm -hmm. they, the, there's an actual physical response that occurs with, for instance, how your heart pumps, that your, 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 your heart pumps in a manner that actually pushes blood to your extremities. And because that's, that's right. what allows your muscles to trigger the run mechanism, all that kind of stuff. And then mm-hmm. the question that came in that lecture was, well, think about it like this. If all the blood is rushing towards your hands and your feet, that's why like when you're on a roller coaster or you're angry, you might feel your hands flush, your feet flush. If, if the blood's rushing there, where is it run, rushing away from? Well, actually, when you're under high stress, 
the hormones actually, we bring them in. And so all of our major organs are uh, protected. So every, like all of our digestion, we're protected by that. So it's less out to the extremities, more into, oh my God, I have to get out of here. And so then all of that energy stored up can actually go to your legs to get out of dodge. Yeah. That gotcha. Kind of thing, right. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and the theory being is that if it's, if that's what's going on, the, the mm-hmm. basically the blood's rushing away from your brain and, and, you know, people who, who, you know, have a loss of memory in a high stress situation, they have blackouts, mm-hmm. those kind of things, you know, in the most extreme cases, or, you know, the story about the, the person who got in a fight and, and you ask what's going on. Well, I, I just wasn't thinking, well, no, they weren't thinking because, no, because, weren't thinking. because it's hard to, Right. It's hard to move that away. So, you know, what are some of the triggers? You know, how do you how do you know that you're moving into this state and how do you know what triggers this state? Yeah. So, you know, Dan Goldman's written a lot about emotional intelligence over the last 25 years, and he talks about what you're describing is your amygdala, that mid center of the brain gets hijacked and it gets hijacked by these neurochemicals that, that go. So triggers are interesting um, experiences because a trigger is anything that takes us out of the moment that we're in into somewhere else and does it rapidly. And oftentimes uh, people have learned that triggers are a bad thing, that we should avoid being triggered. I don't want to be triggered. The reality is we're all triggered a lot of the time to be out of the moment And we're triggered in our reactivity because we've all learned to understand the world in a particular way. And so if you and I disagree and we disagree vehemently, then I might be triggered by you sharing an opinion that I don't like or that I find hard to make sense of and integrate. So the trigger, and I actually write about triggers in the book, triggers are actually a way into, they're a portal into the possibilities for something new to happen. So we actually want to learn what our triggers are. The triggers, Chris, to your question can be varied. So what triggers you might be different than what triggers me. Now there are some common triggers like traffic can get us all into a point where, Oh my God, road rage. Well, that's, you know, there's a lot of neurochemicals happening with road rage, how I respond to it though, whether I'm instead of reacting has a lot to do with, do I really want to waste my energy on flipping somebody off on the expressway or my boss, if I think he or she is wrong, or do I want to secure my energy and use it in a more useful way? I don't have those choices if I'm simply reactive, but if I can respond, and this is where mindful attention training comes in is I can catch myself. Like I don't want to go down that road and use up all my energy today and be in a bad mood all day because somebody on the way to work got me all agitated. I give my power and control away when that happens. And leaders today cannot afford to be giving their power and control away to something like as silly as traffic in the morning, right? There are many other examples. So we want to be able to harness that energy. That's why we need to train our attention so we can catch ourselves and then respond. So, you know, part of the trick, yeah, absolutely it does. And, and, and I think about, you know, some of the, the research that we've done and, and the fact that as human beings back to our fight or flight mechanisms, we're wired to a negative bias anyway. So when things happen, mm-hmm. when triggers occur, you know, yeah. our, our first step's always going to be, at least at a subconscious level, something that moves us into a negative, negative place, mm-hmm. negative state. 
um, right. I don't think we can avoid the trigger. I don't think we can avoid mm-hmm. the, 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 that first step into the negativity. But what I'm hearing you say is the trick with mm-hmm. mindful awareness is to recognize when it's happening to get out of that state much quicker than you might have otherwise. That's exactly right. And the phrase I use is one that I stole from a colleague years ago. And it's, how do you catch yourself being yourself reacting? And so how do you catch yourself being yourself? Because in that moment of a pause, oh, I'm catching myself. There's that thing that I do that's reactive. And now I've learned to know it a little bit. I know that trigger. Now I can zero in my attention, get to know that trigger very well with a mindful pause and really get to know it like an old friend, because then I have greater choice about, uh Oh, this is what I want to do. I want to act in this way and not in that way. I want to respond, not simply react. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, so what I was going to say is it, the reason I wrote the leadership pause, many people have asked me this is I think that it's the, the linchpin for everything. Mm-hmm. is the pause. Because if we can pause, what we can do then is um, harness our attention, reduce our neurochemicals so that we can be more balanced, and then we can be alert and focused and make the next right choice. Got it. I, you know, so I'm, I'm super, super curious about this. And I'd love to dive into, you know, the book and the pause itself a little bit more. We are up mm-hmm. on our next break. So we're going to, we're going to mm-hmm. step away for just a couple minutes, but when we come back, I want to deepen our exploration of the leadership pause. So stay tuned, everyone. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes with Dr. Chris Johnson. In business, many leaders have a great vision, but find their companies are lacking adequate execution. Transformative Experts with host Chris Elias takes you behind the scenes with real-life business leaders and transformative experts who can pinpoint why. Listen to learn how company culture drives execution to optimize results. How can you afford to miss it? Tune in live every Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And catch our weekly replay on the Voice America Influencers Channel, Sundays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time. Is your company or team struggling to achieve the results you would like? Optimize your life, your team, and your organization through clarity, purpose, and action. At Nexecute, we have over 100 years of combined experience leading organizations and coaching individuals to achieve their vision. We design a customized approach to ensure successful execution and optimize your results. Connect better. Grow better. Take the next step and give us a call for a free consultation with your host, Chris Elias. 888-378-8808. That's 888-378-8808. This is Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. If you have a question or a comment about the show, please send an email to listener at transformativeexperts.com. Now, back to Transformative Experts. We're back one last time with Dr. Chris Johnson. So, Chris, um, before we went to the break, we were talking about all kinds of stuff, the science behind this. And I was thinking, you know, Throughout my life, I've kind of had these kind of ebbs and flows of when I've worked on this stuff. You know, I'm trying to trying to, you know, keep my mind clear. And, and I know that when I'm focusing on it, I seem to, to do better at everything. You know, it's just, uh-huh. I seem to have a more calm life, but then stress gets in the way, triggers get in the way. I forget this. Um, and I realize as we're talking, you know, this is not a technique. 
This is not a, like, go take a, you know, one hour workshop and you've changed your life forever. Mm-mm. This takes a lot of work, a lot it of does. discipline. It does. It does. Actually, um, so you said something earlier yourself, something about how we're wired for a negativity bias and you're right. And the way that shows up in like common every day is we tend to crab and complain about change. We don't like to change. We like things to stay the same. We like that. And we like that because there's a, uh, an illusion that's very comforting sort of that if things are certain and settled that I can relax and, um, that isn't borne out by the science and it isn't borne out by life. Life is constantly changing. And we know that if we sit and think about it, but most of us don't really want to sit and think about it because we're kind of caught up in this hamster wheel of simply living our lives. And so um, the way that I like to speak about it, uh, it is a discipline and it is a practice. It's an ongoing choice to pay attention and to orient oneself around what really matters most in life. And in, in particular, in relative to my book, in your leadership, like, what do you really care about as a leader? What's the culture you want to create? How do you want to develop your people? All of that. So learning to train and harness attention, starting with the pause, really brings a whole host of benefits. Um, it decreases stress. It increases immunity. We can become much more resilient in what we're doing. We have more uh, mental flexibility. So we talk about VUCA, the new world of VUCA, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. So we can increase our ability to be agile simply by practicing and being intentional about it all. Um, It helps with perspective taking, empathy, and compassion, which we need more of today as leaders. And it helps us with our decision making and ultimately our execution. So all of this is predicated by what's going on in our bodies. It's not just our thinking mind. It is that, but it's our heart and it's our whole self that we bring to the party. So there is a a guy, Kevin Cashman. He's a leadership expert himself. And there's a quote I love of his. It goes roughly like this. I might botch it a little bit, but why would a pragmatic, hard-driving leader pause in order to get move forward and accelerate. And then he answers his own question and he says, and I love this, he's like, they pause because they have to sort themselves through the complexity that's confronting us today. And so the pause is really the opening to access on purpose our neurobiology so we can be more on point, so we can put the brake on and be more present to actually what's happening and unfolding. So Lots of people think, well, if I just follow the prescription and check off the list, I'll be a good leader. A good leader is about being your whole natural, authentic self, whoever that is. And all that you bring to the party, which includes warts and all that kind of stuff Mm -hmm. too, and all the mistakes. And it's really this process that I'm talking about is transformative. It transforms leaders, but it's so simple, it's deceptive which is why earlier when you asked the question, how would I convince somebody? I wouldn't. I would say, hey, here's the science. Here's some practices. Go try it out yourself. You tell me what you think. You tell me your experience. And I will bet you dollars to donuts. You will have an amazing experience and you will learn boatloads. You never counted on learning. And you'll get really excited about what's possible. 
That's it's funny. A good friend of mine always said you have to slow down to move fast. And and Absolutely. as you talk about the pause, it's making me so we've talked we've kind of kind of talked around the pause all this time. The 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 title mm-hmm. of the book is the leadership pause with mm-hmm. with a subtitle. Um, yeah. What is the leadership pause? Let's let's actually you know let what is it and how can how can someone who's listening to this broadcast maybe start to leverage it? What would be the first step of starting to leverage this concept? It's a great question. Um, the first step would be following your curiosity that, uh-oh, there's say, somebody saying, this woman's saying something that is, is it worth my listening. Yes, be curious. And then the second step I would say is to um, notice what's happening like right now. That's a pause. So a pause by definition, and I'll say this first, the pause gets a bad rap. Like Kevin Cashman in that quote, most hard driving business people are like, I don't have time to pause. I got work to do. And I get caught up in that stuff too. Right. But it's to help us sort through the complexity. So the first thing is to actually like notice what's happening in the moment. Where are my thoughts? Do I have any awareness that I'm feeling any? Do I, can I feel my heartbeat or my blood flow to my hands? If I can't do any of that, then I'm probably operating too much up here out of my head and not enough full body. So the first step would be what's going on because the pause is really simple. It's the interruption of our automatic reactions. So we can have a junior pause, like in this moment, we could have a weekly pause. Like I have a weekly planning session with myself and my work. Like, oh, I'm gonna pause, sit back, notice what's going on. We could have an afternoon pause. We could have a month long sabbatical. I could take a year off. That could be a pause. A pause is really the opportunity to see what's right here. Not my mental machinations about it or my feeling in the moment, all that's relevant, but really what's happening now. That's a pause. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's really funny. I'm about to say the M word, right? Meditation. Um, yeah, let's, <laughs> let's not put that out there. Uh, I, I mean, I've got a couple of friends, CEOs who practice meditation. And, um, oh. and what, what, I, what I've observed with them is over time, I've watched they're not quite as reactionary in the moment. Because, you know, the, where uh-huh. I was going with my question a moment ago, and I'm, I'm almost answering it, is I can understand taking a purpose pause, you know, Put a little time in the calendar. Go do something. Go play Mm -hmm. a round of golf. You know, get get yourself Mm -hmm. away and don't talk business for a day. Dan Sullivan talks about free days and focus days in 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 his process and a a free day completely free of business. That's a pause, right? As 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 Uh you describe. And yet, in those heavy hormonal moments, the adrenaline is driving, completely triggered. Something has really set set me off. Right. How do you pause in that moment? And I think. It's, it seems to me like, like it's, it, the long-term practice of it can actually help with those, mm-hmm. those spikes that, that can occur, those, those triggered states, because you're in a better place to be able to recognize and pause. You know, I kind of think, how do you stop a train that's in full motion? You know, that's the part that's coming through my mind right now that, that mm-hmm. you know, and we do some kind of work that, that in companies that almost borders turnaround. It's super high stress. And to uh-huh. get somebody to pause and think for a minute, That's a little tricky when that train is running. It is a little tricky. And so the short answer is there's not a short answer. And yet there's a pause. And so what I would say is um, my earlier example about early in my career, when I had this awful kind of contact dermatitis, I hadn't learned to pause. So my body was absorbing all of that stress in such a way, and it manifested 
in that physical sensation. And I was at that point in time, I was fairly clueless, right? I mean, so the pause and learning John Kabat-Zinn's meditation work helped me to have a different way to work with the incoming stress. Fast forward many years later, a consistency of pausing, and this is the hard work you mentioned, a consistent pausing practice can basically what we do is we create a new second nature. We talk about something being first nature. It's my nature. Well, we're going to actually cultivate a second nature on purpose. So I can be on purpose in my leadership. So that doesn't mean you're not going to have jammed up moments where there's high stress. It just means that you're going to be able as a leader to be more effective and nimble and agile about working with it. Hard decisions still have to be made. Sometimes jobs are lost. Sometimes all kinds of things happen in business, but it's the capacity to be present with what is that allows the wisdom that we talk about leaders cultivating and having talk about wise leaders. Part of what makes them wise is they're able to do this pausing sort of practice, however they're doing it to bring their full selves to whatever those decisions need to be. So, you know, the concept like, like a lot of great leadership concepts, the, the concept itself is pretty simple, right? And there's, mm-hmm. there's so much elegance and simplicity, it's, it's just not even funny. But back to the yeah. discipline piece, putting something yeah. simple into practice is not always so simple. It's not always so nope. easy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, are, there any, are there any tricks? Like one of the things that comes to my mind is, is as I was, whenever I'm trying to develop a new habit, uh-huh. You know, I'll, I'll put a reminder every single day at 730 in my calendar, and it'll just be a mm-hmm. couple of words. It's like, you know, I, I do golf. I don't know if you golf or not, but, mm-hmm. but we talk about a swing thought. What's your swing thought when you get up just before you take your shot, yeah. right? The, the one yeah. thing that you want to put through to, to make sure that your swing is as good as it can be in that moment. And I think That's in right. terms of what's my swing thought of the day. Uh-huh. Nice. You know, and, and something that I can carry with me. So, so I almost tee up the thought ahead of time. Um, that would be a mm-hmm. technique I might use. So I might, let's say, sure. um, you know, maybe, maybe over the next, you know, it takes six months to develop a habit. So for six months, 730 reminder, remember to pause, remember to pause, remember to pause and starts yeah. developing a habit around that. Um, do you have, do you have any other, you know, suggestions or any other thoughts for ways that, that you can start building a discipline around this? Yeah. Thank you for asking. Um, Yes. So I like what you're talking about with your swing thought because you're intentionally choosing a phrase to remind you of a choice and a behavior you're going to enact. And you put it on the calendar every morning at 730. So those are the kinds of examples I would say, like, so practicing something, I would start small. I wouldn't do eight things at one time. I'd pick one to do one, maybe two if we're really pushing it. So, and I would um, challenge people, I do challenge people that throughout the day that you pick a time. So if we used your example at 7.30, you're gonna ask what's your swing thought? And I would say, pick a time around lunch and check in with yourself. And I would teach you a 30 second pause practice to get you into your body, allow the neurochemicals to settle. It takes about 60 to 90 seconds for the stress hormones once they're activated that when we're intentional, 60 and 90 seconds to get them to dissipate. So if you can practice that at lunch, then you're starting fresh at lunchtime. You can repeat your phrase and then do that a couple more times during the day. These do not have to be long, 
horribly difficult. They need to be just outside of your comfort zone, but not so hard that you won't do it at all. So daily practice, something small. Often what I encourage in building new habits is to marry it with something you already do. So you might um, make your morning uh, mantra, what's your swing thought? Mm-hmm. And you might do that while you're brushing your teeth because you already do that in the morning. It's already an embodied practice. So you marry those together, they get stronger. We know this from neuroscience, what fires together gets wired together. So if I'm wiring my new affirmation in the morning, my swing thought with my teeth brushing and maybe my coffee, then pretty soon that gets wired. It's a new super highway in our brains and it's going to become the default highway over time, which is why you can look at your leaders and say, oh, they're less reactive over time. Of course they are, right? They've been practicing. Got Mm -hmm. it. Got it. The other thing I would say to anybody listening would be this, is to be kind to yourself. And what I mean by that is we're in such a hard driving culture that it's all about checking off the box and getting to the end. And I would say, be kind, because you're not going to do this perfectly. You won't practice every day consistently as much as you're committed to that. And there needs to be a generosity of spirit to like, okay, I didn't do it today. So I'm going to restart today and I'm going to give myself a pass. And that is fine. And that is okay. And stick with it. That's excellent. Well, we've only got a couple of minutes left. Um, you know, you've got your, your company is Q4 Consulting. Um hmm. And you also, you know, as part of your work, you, you, you do this work with clients and, and people out there and leadership yes. teams, et cetera. Um, yeah. Do you do that? Like, is it a workshop basis? I mean, how do you, how do you tend to do that with, with clients? Um, so there's some programming that's year long programming for teams and individuals. And then I do one-on-one executive coaching, leadership coaching as well, both of those. Uh, and I'm developing an online course that's run already once this year, but that'll be in the fall. It'll be uh, an eight-week course over uh, 10 weeks, and we'll dive a little bit more into how to cultivate and practice the pause. And one last thing I would say to you um, here, Chris, is that when we're developing habits or our leadership or both, because leadership we could say is a habit, is that we want to zero in on what matters most to you, what's important to you. If your core values and your purpose are not aligned, you won't learn and take on that habit. But if they are aligned, it'll matter and you'll be a rock star. Yep. Couldn't agree with you more. Well, everyone, um, that's, we've had our conversation today with, with Dr. Chris Johnson. Um, Chris is, among other things, the author of The Leadership Pause, Sharpen Your Attention, Deepen Your Presence, and Navigate the Future. Great book. Look it up. Um, get it. You can find Chris on LinkedIn. Um, Chris, if somebody else wants to get a hold of you, um, your website, maybe if you'd spell it out for everybody. Sure. It's q4-consulting.com. And that's the and number find, four, not, not spelled out. So Q, the number right. four. Yes. Q, the number four dash consulting.com, or you can reach me on LinkedIn. Love to connect with you all. Excellent. Great. Thank you so much for being with us today. This has been a great conversation. It has, Chris. Thanks so much for inviting me. I appreciate it. Glad to have, have you. Have a great day. Thanks. Bye-bye. So folks, thanks for, uh, for listening to, the, uh, to our interview today. Stay tuned. We've got more great guests coming up in the near future. And until then, I hope everything goes well in your life. Thank you for joining Chris Elias for this week's edition of Transformative Experts. 
We hope you'll tune in again next Monday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And catch our weekly replay on the Voice America Influencers Channel, Sundays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time. Have a good week.